In this episode, we discuss what makes the Anabaptist worldview unique and why it matters to us today. I'm here again with Chester Weaver. And Chester, you're a board member of Anabaptist Perspectives. You've been a school teacher for many years. And I know one of the things that you're really passionate about is the Anabaptist worldview and the history of how we got up to this point. So in this episode, I want to explore a little of what that looks like. What is it about the Anabaptists that is unique? What is it that we have to offer the world and why does it matter? Very good questions. Let me go to our first slide here to answer that. Okay, if we start on the left there with secularism, basically the idea that there is no God. Evolution is the prevailing mechanism to make it work. Random chance. There is nothing ordered, just everything just happens. So when you put God into the picture, at first we have the Roman Catholic worldview, which was all about the Holy Mother Church, and it dispensed salvation. There's no salvation outside the church. You see that big circle? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a solid circle, and there's salvation inside. Okay, that creates a whole culture of dependence. In fact, the Pope found this very effective. He could pronounce interdict. If as a king not listening to him, he could stop the whole system and say, okay, no communion, no grace, nobody can get married, nobody can die because you have to have extreme munchkin, no babies getting born because you have to be baptized. Everything just stops, which caused people to pressure their kings to listen to the Pope. So everything is dependent upon the Holy Mother Church. And this would have been like historically before the time of the Reformation, That's right. you know, and people pushing back against that, right. saying, wait a second, this doesn't seem right, but this is how it would have been for exactly. quite some time. That is right. And then Martin Luther came along and said, you know, that is hocus pocus. That's not what the scriptures teach. He said that salvation is by grace through faith. Grace alone, faith alone. It's God and I. We don't need the Holy Mother Church. I go straight to God. I don't have to confess my sins to a priest. I confess them to God. And so God forgives me. My name is recorded in the books of heaven. And so if you look at the bottom here, you'll notice there's a bunch of dots, each one relating directly to God. You don't see any circle, Holy Mother Church. It creates a culture of independence. So the Anabaptists said, well, you know, there's some truth in that. That's one leg of the story, but there's another leg. And this relates to sanctification. But if you notice on the third part, it's like God others, and me. In other words, no man is in Christ apart from his brother. We are relating to God collectively as well as individually. So if you look inside these circles, and once again, they are circles, but there are dots inside the circles that are connected. Every church does not dispense salvation, but the church has opportunity to love each other in that little local fellowship. So there's an accountability system the opportunity to love and care inside that circle. But you notice that the circles are connected because there are other churches just like that. Not only does interdependence work in a local congregation, it's between congregations as well. Now, that creates a culture of interdependence. The way this worked out economically, we'll talk about first. If you look in the world today, where Roman Catholicism has been the over- shadowing worldview, you'll notice that there are really no real strong nations that are 
the top of the pile, we'll say, financially, economically. So much of human potential has been trapped within the system. But when you come to the independent model, United States of America was built on this Protestant independent model where human potential was mm. unleashed. It's all about me, basically. Yeah. yeah, and what I can do. And that created huh. huge wealth. It became the United States became the, the most prosperous and the strongest nation on, in history. However, it was done at the expense of people who knew how to work capitalism quite well. John D. Rockefeller became the richest man in the world because he was willing. It was the survival of the fittest. It's evolution in the church and in the nation. If I know how to be strong and beat the competition, I am at the top and I have a right to be there based on the Darwinian model. Okay, so there's other people like Andrew Carnegie as well and Vanderbilt. These men were known as the robber barons. They made the United States wealthy in a big way. However, they did it at the expense of the laborer. And Karl Marx from Europe watched and saw what was going on. He said, there's a problem there. These people at the bottom are almost like slaves. These slaves are all making these few men at the top really wealthy. And so communism as an economic system was born because he saw the abuses of this independent thing. We're not gonna go into the communist model, except that Karl Marx, who was a Jew, put God out of the picture completely. And this is just a materialistic world without God, where everybody is supposed to serve other people, not the, just the people at the top, okay? It does not work. The Hutterite story is the only communistic model has ever worked long-term, okay? So even in the United States of America, with the trust busting that came in, the model is no longer men at the top at the expense of people at the bottom. The whole uh, economic model is instead of a hierarchy, it's more of a, uh, of a level playing field. You know, you have economic leadership, but wealth is supposed to be spread out. As long as that happens, there's no revolution. See, Karl Marx said, eventually, United States plus others are going to have a proletariat revolt against the bourgeoisie. Well, you start dealing with interdependence where everybody needs each other instead of the rich man needing a few, uh, many people at the bottom to serve him, you prevent revolution because the economics are spread around. And that has, I guess you could say, finished the chapter because Revolution, for economic reasons, are no longer a part of the picture. However, this whole model is in a process of breaking down in more recent days, and I don't want to necessarily go into that right now. I, what I want us to understand, that the New Testament strongly teaches interdependence that even the business people in this country have gotten a hold of now, and business is in much better shape as they operate according to those principles just as that God has already told the church how to work that way. When people and groups get a hold of God's ways of working, it just works better. And I'm saying interdependence is the New Testament way that God expected people to work among each other. Okay, so now another way to look at it, this is a little different uh, graphic that shows the same thing. On the left side, we have dependence again. But it notices that not only is the Catholic there, but some old order Amish people have reverted to that model where salvation is in the church. 
Okay, there's a problem there, but that's an Anabaptist illustration of failing to keep this ideal. Jesus Christ to the Holy Scriptures is the ultimate authority. When that is lost, then a number of other things happen. This is the result. So this is basically saying the church is coming in, a, a particular church congregation, say, as, and, and is claiming we are the authority. That's right. Instead of pointing it back to exactly Jesus. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure they would ultimately say it goes back to Jesus, but it ends up becoming uh, maybe twisted a bit or... Yeah. That makes sense. I see that. Okay, so you'll notice in the second one there that we have a bunch of individuals related to God, but the, the church is kind of off to the side. It's like the church is a resource group. That's different mm -hmm. from an interdependent model. Now, if you look over here in the third graphic where it says biblical and Anabaptist view, it has the people in one church. What it does not have is the churches interdependent. See, God relates to us as individuals. But God relates to your church as a group. But your church benefits from its interdependence with other churches. Okay? This third graphic does not bring that into view, but that's, I don't want us to lose that. But you'll notice that both of those last two refer back to Jesus Christ. And the one view in the middle there, the Protestant view, the arrows are only up. But you see in the third view, there's an arrow that's down. That's indicating that there is an interdependent relationship between Christ actively working in the church. And that's a real privilege. Whenever we realize it's not just us strategizing to serve God, a little bit like the second shows, we are cooperating with Christ to build the kingdom of God in the world today. And that includes interdependence with a large group of people. I love that principle. No man is in Christ apart from his brother. Okay, moving on. Part of this Anabaptist worldview is the two-kingdom concept. We have the kingdoms of this world, but they're broken. Now, forever, human beings have thought with politics and by force, you can make something good happen in the world, and with measured success. But it's always broken. We like to think that by voting and by having virtue, we can always fix the brokenness with good politics. It doesn't work. Even Penn's whole experiment finally didn't work. The kingdom of this world operates on an entirely different basis from the kingdom of Christ. As you see here, the kingdom of Christ is not broken. It's in the world, but it's not of the world. Jesus was very profound when he says that human beings give to Caesar what is Caesar's, this world, but to God what is God's. There are two kingdoms. I think the New Testament teaches us to forsake wasting our time on the broken kingdoms of this world and give our time, energies, and strength to the kingdom of Christ, which is eternal. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out because the kingdom of Christ is eternal. His demand for ultimate loyalty supersedes loyalty to any earthly kingdom. It's a forever kingdom, but that loyalty to Christ's higher kingdom threatens the kingdoms of this world. And that's why they got to get rid of them. Does that come back to that classic statement, they're so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good? That's what they say. That's what they say, and, and I think that's it. With things like this, yes. is a common misconception. You're so, Oh, you're so wrapped up in you know whatever, you're of no good to day-to-day -day life, yeah. which I think is completely false, but I could see maybe people could have that perception. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know what you would say 
in response to that, but... Well, I think that that's all that it is, a misperception, because people who live in the kingdom of Christ, how often do they go to jail? How often does the government have to rescue families? If the kingdom of God teaches people to be obedient and frugal and responsible, you have taxpayers, you have family units that are strong and virtuous, you don't have children who are delinquents and getting into drugs, is that too heavenly mind that's no, no earthly good, or is it actually earthly good because you're in the kingdom? Mm-hmm. It produces valuable people. Yeah, I can see that because it can be easy to lift these things into lofty, idealistic, or utopian terms. And it's just like, okay, that's so imp- – it doesn't matter. But in reality, in the day-to-day, it actually does really apply. Right. Okay, so for this particular graphic here, I got this from Rose Publishing. You notice that this is referring to the statue in the book of Daniel where Babylon is the head of gold and uh, the silver is Persia and uh, the bronze is Greece and the Rome is the iron and the feet are iron and clay. But the stone that's cut out of the mountains without hands is Jesus. And it hits the image on the feet and destroys it all. Okay, so this is a wonderful reminder that in spite of the best political systems we can come up with, there is something that's going to destroy all these. And I think it's a waste of time and energy to devote all my time and life to an earthly kingdom when something's going to supersede it and bring it down anyway. It makes all the sense in the world to be a part of Christ's eternal kingdom. We just need to help our people understand that it's in their own best interest to give their time and energy to that kingdom. For example, if the U.S. Army wants me to serve it, I would give my life for that country. Well, I would, with all of my country's failings, why would I want to give some my life to that, the ultimate sacrifice? I would much rather give my life and the ultimate sacrifice to the eternal kingdom of Christ that will never disappear. It's forever. Christ's followers waste their time and energy when they become politically active or politically involved in the kingdoms of this world. All the earthly kingdoms throughout all of history will fade and disappear. Only Christ's eternal kingdom merits the sacrifice of our lives. Why not be a winner? Is this a matter of people being more short-sighted? Because it's like, well, the here and now, you know, next year, like you, you tend to be thinking about what's right in front of you and hence earthly power struggles and empires and things like that. But when you take the long view of history, it's like, well... Nobody really thinks about, you know, the Assyrians anymore, you know, and that was only, what was that, 200 generations ago or whatever. Maybe our view of time is too short. Okay. I think it's both. I think it's a short view of history, but it's also, this is saying it rather bluntly, kind of unbelieving. If Christ makes those clear statements, we don't really believe him. Mm -hmm. We tend to believe what we can feel and see and hear. Okay, isn't this exactly what the disciples went through when they were working or following Jesus? There's this misconception, oh, he's the Messiah and he's going to come destroy Rome and and bring about our kingdom. And they missed it. And that's after three years of being with Jesus and they still missed it. And they still had that short view of history thinking now it's going to happen. And then Jesus dies and they're like, wait a minute, Uh, we got it wrong. Um, It sounds like a very human thing. It is a human thing. It's right at the beginning of the start of the church. It's something that we've had to work with. That's right. Exactly. Okay, so one of the ways the kingdom of Christ is grown is through family. And this comes straight from Frank Reed. He says, 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Train them with God's nurture and admonition. If children are trained with God's nurture and admonition from their very young days, they will adopt God's ways and God's order in their lives. God's ways will seem normal and right. We can live with and for God. He made that possible. He gave us everything we need to live and to raise children. He set everything in order. If and when we honor his order, life will work. If not, then not. Nurture is care. Admonition is guidance. Children need both. They need both from God's perspective. That's our task, to bring God to our children and our children to God by living his ways before them. By words and by life, we bring nurture and admonition to the children. Adam and Eve failed. We do not need to fail. They made excuses. We do not need to make excuses. We can do what God said. We can live the way he told us to live. If and when we do, life will work. We speak and model God's ways. Children see and follow. That is God's plan. That is God's way. And I would say, amen. The family is the basic unit for growing the kingdom of Christ. That's not all. We have evangelism to do also, but that's the basic growing unit. Okay, so we're going to change the focus just a little bit here with some basic Anabaptist understandings. These are kind of unique from our neighbors now. And this comes straight out of Benedict Encyclopedia, Volume 5. It says, Anabaptist theology differs from the theology of Christian neighbors on a number of points. Number one, people are not totally depraved. Our Calvinist worldview friends would say that they are. Secondly, children are safe until the age of accountability. And we're not going to go into the theology of all this. But Roman Catholics here would say, you need to have them baptized by eight days. And when Anabaptists did not do that, they were called baby haters. Uh, yeah, because without that, they were saying, oh, this child is no longer saved or safe, I That's guess right. you could say. Okay, and much more could be said about that. But uh, mankind enjoys freedom of the will. And there are people like uh, some of our friends say they wouldn't talk about freedom of the will. They say bondage of the will. And I don't want to go into all that, uh, that theology right now. But this is our unique. We understand that mankind around the world enjoys freedom of the will. We understand that God is humble enough to allow us to make the choice. He works in us. And I cannot understand why some of us are giving more advantages than others, but nobody is forced to. Fourthly, that salvation is holistic, and we've been talking about this in that it includes every aspect of life. It's healed. The whole person is transformed into the image of Christ. It's not just the spiritual thing, just through my brain and, or my heart, but even my life is sanctified by living according to God's principles. We don't smoke. You don't drink, you don't do drugs, you prevent that kind of thing. And anybody who is in that and gets saved moves away from that kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. salvation is holistic. The next item is the faithful church is the experiential community of salvation. In other words, we together help each other be sanctified. We are going to stand before God individually and give account of ourselves individually. But part of that individual accountability has to do with how I'm relating to you. Mm-hmm. And lastly, salvation is not an individualistic matter. It includes voluntary participation in the visible church. It's God and us, not just God and I. 
No man is in Christ apart from his brother. And so it's a privilege to be able to do this with you because I'm not in Christ alone. It's just not God and I. It's God and us and everybody else who gets involved in my world. It's us. I love that principle. It's so, it fits so well with the New Testament. Okay, this comes from George Williams, professor at Harvard, and this is written in 1962. He's writing about the Refor Radical Reformation. So this is only like 60 years old. He said this about the Radicals, which is our beginnings. They clearly differentiated themselves from the 16th century Protestants on what they considered the true church and proper Christian department. They saw in Luther's doctrine of salvation by faith alone a new indulgence system more grievous than that which he had attacked. That's a good way of saying it. Is he also kind of hinting at this idea that I can I just get saved once and I'm good and I never can lose it? Yeah. Right. I'm just, so you can just live however you want. Live to. How, yeah. Do whatever you want. He also said these radicals all were alike in their dissatisfaction with the Lutheran, Zwinglian, Calvinist forensic formula of justification with any doctrine of original sin and predestination that seemed to undercut the significance of personal religious experience and their continuous exercise of disciplines by which they strove to imitate the life of the original apostolic community. Now that's a mouthful, <laughs> but uh, they could see through the faulty theology of their friends, and they just understood there's more to it than what their friends said. It has to do with the sanctification we were talking about. Justification and sanctification. It, the unique idea of we must have sanctification along with justification is what differentiated them from their friends. Oh, this, okay. So this, so this looks like an interesting chart. Definitely break this down for me. Okay, here. so let's start up in the top right-hand quadrant where we have discipleship. That's a part of the Anabaptist vision where we emphasize strong doctrine and strong practice. And it goes along with the previous slide here that it's not just empty talk. There's discipline, but there's surrender to Christ as well that creates strong practice. We literally obey, even if it's difficult. We literally obey. And that produces a culture of discipleship. Now, before I do that, I should have branched out and give you the overview first. You notice at the very top, it's high orthodoxy, which means high emphasis on correct doctrine. The very bottom is low orthodoxy or not strong emphasis on correct doctrine. On the left, we have low orthopraxy, which means low emphasis on practice. High orthopraxy means a lot of emphasis on practice. Okay, so, so theoretically, you could be on this side and, and be into salvation by works, yeah. essentially, because it's all about what you do. How hard can I work? To, okay. But you have to have both high orthodoxy and high orthopraxy to really do discipleship the way mm. the New Testament would teach it. Once again, we have this, you know, vertical, horizontal kind of thing, both coming in to bear on this. Mm -hmm. As in, it's this is something that Jesus does change our lives, and it will impact how we live. Exactly. But that only works if you actually have both of have, those. Yeah. 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 Okay, so let's go to the uh, creedalism, which is a strong emphasis on doctrine, but weak practice. Some of our Protestant friends, evangelicals especially, emphasize creedal statements, what they believe. Yeah. But it's less important how they practice. 
because they're they have a low orthopraxy model. Is this part of that whole idea we have to get everything just right doctrinally with right. what scripture teaches and right. the fundamentals of scripture right. is this, 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 but then it's also very weak in okay. living it outside of scripture. So fundamentalism is right there. Okay. Okay. Because then you start getting into, we've got all the T's crossed and I's dotted, right. but then Monday through Saturday, it doesn't really change our lives yes, that much, that's right. which is kind of sad, but yeah. there, there's, there's a lot of surveys that show that that is right. the case. You got it. Yeah. Okay, so if we go below that, where we have low orthopraxy but low doctrine, we have nominalism. Where As people, in, like, just nothing kind of matters. That's right. Nothing matters. You, you've heard of nominal Catholic, or you can even say nominal evangelical, or people who are such and such in name only, but that's about it. We Cult, doc- cultural Christians, there maybe. You go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that, that's very common. Okay, so we go across the bottom there to activism. We still have low orthodoxy. Doctrine is not too emphasized, but there is strong practice and it produces activism. Some of our liberal Mennonite friends are there. It's important that we have social justice, strong practice, but some of the other doctrines that go along are kind of skewed somewhat because we have a certain area of doctrine that we're emphasizing and we're not paying attention to everything where we would understand that's all the words of Christ. We're not free to just simply be unbalanced in this whole thing. Okay, so these are just four quadrants. And we would say that all Christians fit themselves into those four quadrants in some fashion. Just a general overview. That's a really helpful matrix. I know it's kind of general, obviously, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more detail to it, but it it gives us a... Uh, it gives us a target to aim for. Okay, we we do want strong um, orthodoxy. You know, that's yes. important. I mean, having doctrine correct. But then are you coupling that with actually living it out? I think you'd said earlier um, something to the effect that theology is only 50% unless, unless you're actually applying it and that's living right. it and that's letting right. it that's right. become part of you and changing your life. That's right. Otherwise, it, it really loses a lot of the emphasis of what it is. This is really helpful. I. I would um, ask one last thing on that poster. Um, do you have a spot where you think the Anabaptists, at least historically, would have fit on this? I know it's kind of hard to say today because there's so much variety, but what what was that? Like they would have been f- pushing back against things like probably the nominalism and, yes. and the creedalism. Okay, right? so nominalism, we'll say, was the what the the basic European system that they pushed back on. Kind of that feudal... But Calvin and Luther emphasized and became creedal. Okay. And this is where Anabaptists said that's not enough. There's something else yet. So they would have been trying to push up into that's this right. college. And, exactly. And that would goes back again to some of the things we were saying before. That, that really disrupted a lot of the fabric of how right. society was in Perfect. medieval Europe. And they're like, whoa, Anabaptists, don't do that. You're messing up our nice balance exactly. of power. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And and I, th- I think we should be fair and clear to, to our listeners and viewers. We're not saying, oh, all the Anabaptist people got no. it perfect and they're no. up here on this no. corner. Of course not. Uh, you know, I think we're, you know. The Munster but, people was an illustration. Th- their practice went way askew. Sometime we should do an episode on that story, by the way, because that is a part of the Anabaptist story that is that is really it's un- awful. It's, it is really horrible, but it shows it's very easy to lift up the ideals of what we have, but also we need to remember 
that it's composed of a bunch of human beings that That's are right. fallen, who have struggles and have definitely made mistakes. And yes, they were aiming for this, the early Anabaptists. And throughout history, I would say some groups have done this or, or gotten close or at least tried to strove to be there. There is no such thing as a static Christian or a static church or even mm. a static group. And we're always changing in some fashion. We should always be migrating toward Christ because we can't be static. If we're not migrating toward Christ, we're migrating away from him. And that's for 500 years been our story. And uh, we, can, we can look at various groups within the big denomination and how well they did on these terms. I think that's a really a solid piece to end this with is for each of our listeners and our churches and all of these things, when all the dust settles, so to speak, what is it that you're moving towards? Exactly. Are you continually moving towards Christ? That's right. And and all the other things are are just terms, but that's that is the point. Are yeah. you are you reading what Jesus teaches us and are you trying to be like Jesus? Right. Basically. Amen. That's a great note to end on, Chester. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I feel like I learned a lot and and I hope our our listeners did as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode, and thanks to our donors and partners for making this possible. To learn more about this ministry, view our About Us video linked below. You can also subscribe to our supporters' update at anabaptistperspectives.org.